Welcome to Bamsey's Manity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan along with uh, Peter Evers, and we have a really exciting edition of the Humanity First Podcast today as we're going to be talking about health from a holistic perspective in Brockton. And really, you know, for the last 15 months, health has all been about COVID-19. And this conversation is going to include some aspects of COVID-19. We're going to talk about the vaccination rate here in Brockton and also how we can go about increasing access to the vaccine and decreasing hesitancy in regard to the vaccine during the course of this conversation and also look at some of the ways in which we can cross-pollinate and work together uh, here to uh, create healthy outcomes for Brockton residents. Let's welcome in right now the president and CEO of BAMSI, Peter Ears. Peter, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Chris. Thanks Great. very much for that intro. And uh, I just want to say that we're very privileged to have on the podcast today Sue Joss, who is the CEO of Brockton Neighborhood Health Center, and Alison Pinkover, who runs the harm reduction programs and substance abuse uh, substance use disorder programs. So welcome to the show, and thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, if I may, I'd just like to start the conversation because I think, you know, having been in healthcare for the past X number of years, which is a lot. Um, Many decades. <laughs> thank you, Chris. Um, <laughs> I've always been struck by community health centers being the, the network that holds America together in terms of health. You know, there's the big hospitals on the hill and we have the greatest respect for, but in terms of becoming... Uh, a part of a community and being able to reach those populations that are more difficult to reach, maybe uh, new American populations, uh, people of color. It's always been, for me, having worked at Dimmock uh, Health Center for years uh, in Rock Street, uh, a really uh, comfortable place to be in terms of service delivery. And I guess, too, the first question I would have to you is that, um, you know, COVID happened and all of a sudden community health centers were right in their crosshairs in terms mm-hmm. of what our community health centers going to do in order to reach these vulnerable populations we're going to talk about this but how did that feel you know after years of sort of saying we're here we're here and then all of a sudden you're right in the in the spotlight yeah it was quite a, a rapid and um startling transition for all of us i think we'd all, always been there for the community and you have served the uh, most diverse lowest income members of our community for decades um, but when this hit, we really had to rethink everything we did and how we did it. We had um, already had a network established where we were probably the best organization, along with organizations like yours at BAMSA, to really reach out to the populations least likely um, to get the care they needed and most uh, at risk for the disease. Um, yet we were set up as a primary care site where you made appointments, you came in, um, you know, you sat in crowded waiting rooms and, you know, you saw the provider, um, you know, on a pretty hectic schedule. So we immediately had to shut down almost everything, at least for a few days. Um, we were not doing any telemedicine within four days. We were almost all telemedicine. Um, and then just really had to think through how do we quickly um, ensure that our staff and patients are as safe as possible um, and really ramp up the, the COVID services um, while at the same time recognizing that we had um, at the time 35,000 patients before COVID who still have diabetes and substance use disorder and, and you know, all of all of the conditions that can't wait 15 months to be treated. So it was, you know, it was a real 
rethinking of everything we were doing. We implemented incident command. Allison became one of our key leaders on that, um, not just in SUD, although that was really key, but in a number of other ways too. So people shifted roles as we shut down our dental department completely for um, a while. The dentist began doing COVID testing and screening and, um, you know, some vaccination later, you know, later. And so really rethinking everything, trying to figure out how to provide non-COVID care through uh, televisits, you know, as best we could. So. Well, and I was the grateful recipient of my first test uh, at Brockton Great. And, uh, it was so well uh, organized. And again, I think one of those, uh, you know, I speak to a lot of my friends are not involved in healthcare or behavioral health, and they've been at home ever since. And, you know, it's, it really wasn't a, it wasn't a choice for people in the healthcare business. It was all these people have these conditions. They'll continue to have them. Mm. We absolutely have to cover the bases in terms of keeping people healthy. And now, Alison, I think um, about the role that you played with people with substance use disorders when we talk about vulnerable populations and you add on these behavioral health conditions uh, and um, the disease of addiction, the likelihood of people, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming some of the homeless population as well, which, of course, we do here at Bamsey, you know, there was a, there were so many layers, and I'm always struck by COVID as being this. And people would say, "Oh, you know, it's, it, it's an equal opportunity disease." No, it wasn't. It was everybody suffered, but we suffered in layers as as a community. And you, I would imagine, were right at the forefront of mm. dealing uh, at the nexus of all of those things. Um, how was that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was one of the concerns we had very early on was how. How the, how the spread of COVID was going to impact um, people who were struggling with substance use, people who were homeless, like that was that was at the forefront of our mind. And I think um, that I hope at, at some point in the future that we'll all be able to sit down and really just kind of talk through the experiences that we had. But one that sticks out in my mind um, was very early in March in 2020 um, when we suspected that there may be one of the first cases of COVID at the shelter but at Mainspring. And it, there was never a question of whether or not we were going to try to support in that situation. And that's something that, that I'm proud of and that I appreciate um, that we've done. And just being able to think through like, okay, like we have quite a few patients who we need to make sure have continued access to their medication for their opioid use disorder, who are going to an isolation hotel. Okay, how do we figure this out? Um, you know, I, I think early on, too, there was a lot of discussion around people who were still actively using drugs who were staying in some of the isolation hotels, and it was, like, quick to pick up, okay, so, um, you know, people here, you know, are, are very much still using drugs. How do we support them? And um, one of the first calls I made was uh, to to some of our partners at the COPE Center to say, okay, how do, how do we support here? Because um, we knew that um, the folks staying there needed access to Narcan, syringes, and any any type of harm reduction supply that you can think of, and we were grateful that the hotel was open to that possibility as well. So it definitely required us to adapt quickly, but was also one of the first times we were able to really just meet the needs of people um, in a really uninhibited way. So that was that was welcome as well. <laughs> Want to touch upon the um, the COVID vaccine numbers a little bit, and you know, some of the. The reasons that we think that you know certain demographics or um, the overall number you know is what it is, and 
Here in Brockton, the vaccine rate is currently um, 39.5% individuals who are fully vaccinated. Um, 11.7% have received one shot, so it's 51.3 is the the combined number there. What's interesting is the female-male ratio is 56% female, 44% male. The most vulnerable population... um, has decent, actually very good numbers of those who have received at least one dose, 80%, 50 to 64, 90%, 65 to uh, 74, and 87% for 75 plus. The numbers start to dip, particularly with the um, teenagers and 30 to 49, where it's uh, 39% with at least one shot for 16 to 29, and 58% 30 to um, 49. In all of your work and experience within the field here what in your view you know explains those numbers which are behind you know the state and obviously you know the national average joe biden has set the goal of i believe 70 percent um vaccinated by july the 4th there's some question as whether that's going to get hit vermont just had um 80 percent hit uh, as a state uh, fully vaccinated and is doing you know, the best in the country, and Massachusetts is doing well, um, and these numbers are still trending better than some of the other places, particularly in the south of uh, this country. So what, in your view, it explains the numbers? The Is it, is it hesitancy? Is it access? Is it all of the above? Um, what, what do you think is the, the rationale behind the, the numbers, Sue? So it's probably more complicated than just one answer. I would say starting with the age, you know, part of it is that um, the older you are, the longer you've had access Mm -hmm. to the vaccine because they did roll out in reverse Mm -hmm. order of age. So, you know, that gives us some hope that as time passes, and we've seen this in particular in the 50 to 64-year-old data, Mm -hmm. that as time passes, those numbers do keep going up. So if you look at the adolescents, they've only had access for a few weeks. Right. So, uh, you know, a piece of that is is just timing. Um, but I think it's more complicated than that when it comes to age. I think there um, is less confidence in the vaccine the younger um, that you get, although not necessarily in the youngest group. They seem really eager. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, you know, um, all kinds of online misinformation to work through, I think, is a piece of it. Um, fear of the government, um, you, you know, actual access. The vaccine really is available all over Brockton, but do people have to take a day off from work mm. um, to get the vaccine? Um, and then a day or so after yeah, as well. Right. right, and, you know, fear of the side effects yep. that may come, especially after the second dose, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, might really co- require them to call in sick for a day. Um, we've seen yeah. that happen fairly frequently over the the course of the second doses in particular, not so much with the first. So um, still a lot of reasons why people are just afraid of the vaccine. Um, Do you yeah. think that um, race comes into this at all in terms of people of color who are um, even more reticent given historical issues? Yeah, um, not because of COVID specifically, but because of the historical... Um, They're vaccine hesitant because of past trials and things of that nature which right. is, is different obviously but right. it's they in that it's been proportionately pushed across the country to all races and as you mentioned the older population first but i think that there's certainly history that dictates that um there have been times in which vaccines have been tested 
on vulnerable populations. Exactly. And th- obviously that's not the case with the COVID vaccine. Right. And it's important to pu- push out that information that obviously that's not been the case. But it, it, Exactly. I think, and it, you know, you can look back, you know, historically the Tuskegee syphilis mm-hmm. trials and um, even further back when um, female slaves were experimented on um, in gynecology, um, going back, you know, centuries even mm-hmm. in those cases. So even though... Um, no one actually remembers those events. That lore and history, you know, just travels through, you know, to the and creates a distrust in the system. I think. And um, there was an emergency room, um, a, a black woman physician, emergency room physician, that did a video um, a month or so ago, and she said, "This is the first time we've ever been prioritized. Why would we trust?" Right. Why would we trust the healthcare system yeah. to prioritize us now? Um, so it just kind of enhances that that lack of trust. Yeah, and I think I totally agree. And we did a listening session here for our staff because the person in December um, of our staff identify as BIPOC. And many of them uh, had that hesitancy. And actually, we brought in a, uh, the head of security at the um, for the Massachusetts courts through a, a mm-hmm. contact who uh, was African-American who came and sort of said, well, here's the justification for me getting it after all this. And yes, I did feel this sense of unease. And as we've had more listening sessions, it's really interesting because people sort of now are saying, because we we didn't have a a really good uptake immediately with it because we had access, because we were doing frontline work, but still we didn't have much um, take-up to begin with. We're catching up now because I think in many ways people are going, okay, so you've had it <laughs> and mm-hmm. you seem okay. And the and yes, the side effects are difficult for some people. It's very varied though, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now people feel a little bit more confident that, that in some ways that first round of guinea pig sort of people have been through that and they they seem to, to be okay with it. And I think the other thing is we're, you know, within Bamsey, if you are um, if you are vaccinated, then you don't have to, you know, wear some. I mean, in the in the homes, you have to wear the, the mask. But you know, there are, you know, times when you don't have to wear that if you have been vaccinated. So I think people we're getting towards a, a critical point now where the majority of our people have been vaccinated. Just wonder if you had that at the health center as well, or was it more? Were people more willing? Um, no, we had the same. When our first round of vaccinations, we ended up with 39% of our staff vaccinated, which to us was um, shockingly low. Um, so the same kinds of hesitancy and fear and distrust and reasons. We're now at 69% as of just a few days ago. Um, but it's been really a slow haul. It's been, you know, four, five, six new employees every week have taken it up. So, um, and we have two vaccine hesitancy nurses. One is Cape Verde and one is Haitian. And, you know, really one-on-one and in small groups talking through with them. Um, but it's been a really slow uptake. And we're just starting now to, to reach out to the staff who have just said yes, who've just had their first vaccination, to see what we can learn from them. Because those of us who were like, I want to be first in line and, you know, get the shot in my arm, um, we don't really understand what it's going to take to get um, people comfortable with the vaccine. But those who held off for six months and just finally just took it, um, we're going to be spending some time with them to understand 
what happened and why. Yeah, and then tell the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's important. Yeah, I think that's huge because um, in order to overcome the hesitancy, um, there's going to have to be individuals who have that exact same hesitancy. It's not like, as you mentioned before, somebody coming up and saying, well, I got the vaccine and here's why, or reading the data, or none of that's going to work. Um, The decision not to get vaccinated, in my view, is... uh, some of it is access driven, um, I think still, but I think the largest is kind of an emotional uh, decision. Mm-hmm. And it's not one that, um, you know, is is based, you know, in data or in, you know, playing the numbers out and all that. It's, as you mentioned before, stories have been passed down from generation to generation. And there's a a fear uh, that you know there is that the government is n- not being honest, or that there. I think another big fear is that there's some sort of an after effect that we don't know about mm-hmm. um, as of yet. And you know, those, particularly the latter piece, is not one that you can really address. And it's um, you know, a friend of mine, David Brooks from the the Concord Monitor, uh, wrote about this, the Granite Geek, and you know, it's we as human beings have difficulty weighing out risk reward scenarios i.e. you know the lottery and things mm-hmm. like like that where you see the you see the reward out there but you don't realize that in fact by playing $5 lottery tickets four times per week that you're you know losing all this uh, this money with very little chance of of success and yeah i'm i'm interested particularly in how you know you overcome the the unknown and that's what people in my view are largely holding out from at this point people know that covid is is real even the biggest covid denier knows that it's real they know the vaccine is effective against uh against covid they know that um you know it's creating an environment where things are opening back up again but there's still that that piece that's stopping people from getting vaccinated peter yeah, I mean, I think I think part of it is telling is continuing to tell the story about the dangerousness of COVID, because you know, doing one thing is not without peril. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's how we have to tell the story. Yes, I think there's been one or two people in the world who have had really serious side effects, and there, and, there, and there have been a few deaths, which uh, I think were pre-existing conditions that that happened. That we need to tell that story. We also need to tell the story that, you know, in Brazil, a um, quarter of a million people are dead because, but, well, I'm not going to get into the politics of it, but there mm-hmm. is a president who has denied COVID. Yeah. Hungary, same thing. Mm-hmm. This country was on the same path. I think the interventions that we've made have actually mm-hmm. made people more aware of the fact that if I don't do this, this is more dangerous than if I do it. So it's not a question of being passive mm-hmm. and safe. Uh, and I think that's a message I think we have to mm-hmm. get over to people. And I think also listening to people, I think the reasons that people have chosen not to be vaccinated or not, it's not a homogenous group. There's all mm-hmm. different reasons. Um, and if you look at how the vaccination was phased out in Brockton, so we're at the Shaw's Center with the National Guard, and, you know, we were doing 1,000, 1,100 vaccines a day at, at the height of it. Um, and just, you know, that was the easy people. That was the people who couldn't wait to get vaccinated, where the phones were ringing off the hook. We couldn't book them fast enough. Um, and so now the easy ones, the ones who really were going to, no matter what, get the vaccine, that's done. And so, um, and, and we've gone some places. So we were at the homeless shelter. Mm-hmm. You know, we were vaccinating um, at senior housing. You know, so, again, easy 
easy ones. Um, the city of Brockton, the Board of Health, um, has been a great partner in, in this, and, and so they took over the senior vaccination when we got a little overloaded at the Shaw Center, and now they're doing um, events. So they're going to Market Basket or, you know, sites like that and having food and music and, and that kind of thing, and um, and they're also at the Shaw Center on weekends. So they're getting... You know, they're getting kind of medium-sized groups. Um, but the next piece of this is really the one-on-one conversations, the mm-hmm. door-to-door knocking. Um, we're looking at, you know, treating this almost like an election campaign, mm-hmm. you know, the door-to-door canvassing, the follow-ups, the, um, you know, um, really working with people one-on-one to understand right. what has, what's motivating them. Yeah. And, is it, it, and just sort of go, to go back to the behavioral health piece of this and the substance disorder is that a, a population that is is coming to get vaccinated is that is it a population which we're able to work with and I, I know that we've had some success at the COVID center working with sure you. yeah absolutely um so we've been um working on vaccinating our our own patients that come into the harm reduction clinic um since they became eligible i want to say it was towards the beginning of april when they added substance use disorder as a qualifying condition um, and I would say there's been um, decent uptake. So we have, you know, a fair number of individuals who stay at the shelter, who also had access through the shelter. Um, and so I, it it appears to us that the uptake is similar to to other groups. Yeah, that's what I heard. Uh, again, I think that's a good message to put out to that population because there are obviously underlying, you know, co-occurring disorders that are, that are concerning to that population, you know. Um, do you mind if we shift a little bit? Because I'm, I'm interested in having a conversation about um, about population health as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, certainly um, in the 30 years that I've been working in Massachusetts and other places, we seem to have been in this care delivery system that is siloed, mm-hmm. the system that sort of is siloed because of the funding that comes through. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about Department of Public Health for substance use disorder, Department of Mental Health for for mental health, et cetera, et cetera. And when you look back on it, you think, well, did you design that system in order to maintain the, the um, siloed mentality? When we're telling a story of overall health, of holistic health, of the fact that, um, you know, I think therefore I am, and the whole idea that the mind is connected to the body. Um, and we seem to be at a place, and maybe I'm being overly optimistic about this after the affordable um, Care Act, and but also these 1115 waivers that come mm-hmm. down from Medicaid that say, look, here's money, experiment with it, try and treat people uh, completely, don't worry about these sort of revenue lines. Um, I see the future of that integrated care uh, within 10 years of you know, a system like ours and yours being way more integrated mm-hmm. in terms of how we work together with the individual at the hub or the center of the care system. I'm just wondering if I'm, you know, looking at the world through rose-colored spectacles. I'm, you know, what does it look like for you in, in the trenches in terms of healthcare and, and also substance use disorder? So, you know, in the midst of COVID, we were also working through this transformation that's coming, and I think way sooner than the 10 years um, that you're envisioning. So um, throughout the pandemic, I was serving on the state's 1115 waiver primary care transformation task force and really looking at exactly what you just described. And the recommendations that are coming out for the next 1115 waiver 
um, is that integration, at least at, at first at that primary care level, where um, we as a primary care provider stop being paid by the visit and are paid uh, per member per month, you know, risk-adjusted based on the needs of the patient and, and their diagnoses, um, so that that liberates us in many ways um, to, you know, does this patient need to see a physician on this visit just because that's what's billable? Um, you know, could a community health worker or, um, you know, someone from BAMSI come in and, and really provide um, services that's really what the patient needs that addresses some of the social determinants issues, you know, maybe enrolls them in a job training, maybe, you know, um, puts them into a nutritional program that'll um, really foster their ability mm. to care for their own diabetes better than we can on the occasional visits. And so um, so I think the state's getting ready to file that, that waiver with those recommendations. It would start um, in 2023, hopefully in January. Um, and really deeply woven in into all of that is behavioral health. Mm -hmm. And for community health centers, we're most of us are already pretty integrated with behavioral health and primary care, but there's still you know, more that we can do, but really, you know, just having that be, um, it may be that the patient doesn't need a medical intervention at all. They need to talk to a social worker or um, one of one of the harm reduction team. Um, so, so just really, you know, integrating all of that so that the goal would be to get the patient the care they really need, not the care that was billable. Yeah. From, from a layman's perspective, um, how would that waiver work? How does the does is the state going to supply, you know, funds for um, entities that are um, supplying it similar to, to Medicaid? Mm -hmm. How is the uh, how would that waiver work? And that is that a, a Massachusetts specific um, program? Has it been have there been piloted anywhere else? Uh, to your knowledge, there have been pilots elsewhere. Okay. Um, the the eleven fifteen waiver is a waiver to the federal Medicaid. Mm -hmm. um, program where the state files and requests a system that's different from the so standard. the state will be asking the federal government to supply the the funds for this as opposed to having it um, having the funds gathered in state or is it their combination it's it's a combination but it's mostly just repurposing the, f the federal Medicaid dollars. Okay. So these dollars are already flowing into the state for the most part, mm -hmm. um, and the state will be requesting to repurpose those so that instead of the approved federal system of paying by the visit and it has to be, you know, certain levels of, of staff, um, they're going to give us, you know, for this patient is worth mm -hmm. $200 a month because they have X, Y, and Z going on, and this one's only worth 100 and we mm -hmm. manage within that budget. And, and have a lot more flexibility. And so is there, for, for everybody, I mean, is there a concern about reimbursement? Because I, I hear that, you know, continuously from um, whether it's the mental health field, yeah. it, Medicaid reimbursement rates are, are really low and very often um, in, in, up in New Hampshire. Um, the, they'll have to sue. Yeah, they'll have to sue in order to actually get their, um, their Medicaid reimbursement. I understand the circumstances yeah. different here. In uh, in Massachusetts, but um, I mean, is is that a is that a concern? Because it is obviously any progress towards creating a whole health um, environment is is really good. But do you, do you feel this is the best? This is going to be a create a, a positive outcome. I, I mean, I hope so. The devil's yeah. in the details, right? right. And um, but the other thing that's been going on through the pandemic, and I'm on this negotiating team as well, is. Um, the the community health centers as a group through the Mass, Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers 
um, has been negotiating with the state over just that. Like, what are the mm-hmm. rates? Um, health centers are paid differently mm-hmm. than private practice, so we've always had enhanced rates that mm-hmm. account for all the extra services we provide. Mm-hmm. And um, but it still wasn't keeping us whole and we were losing and still have been losing a lot of money so we just actually reached an agreement with the state on thursday after almost two years of of working this through where um, we have rates that we really think um, will allow us to do this yeah and i think on the on the behavioral health side we're the hamsey is in the middle of an application for the uh community behavioral health Mm -hmm. um program and that will bring in additional revenue just in the same way that the federally qualified health centers do to provide that safety net. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that, the, and quite rightly in my opinion, the uh, state are going to be demanding a higher standard, as they say, mm-hmm. the raising of the bar. And with the raising of the bar in terms of their expectations around quality outcomes mm-hmm. as opposed to quantity outcomes, will be a higher reimbursement for some. And I think that's the big thing for us at the moment. Well, who's going to be the sum? And what's going to happen to those people who aren't chosen? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and I, and it's vulnerable populations that we worry about. Sure. You know, who and, and you know, uh, populations of, of, of uh, New Americans, that kind of thing, who is who are hard to sort of um, to get uh, in touch with those sort of things. But I think you know, I think to your question that we're moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. We're beginning to have conversations about the person's overall health as opposed to, I always used to think about metabolic disorder that occurs in um, patients with schizophrenia, and we find out they're on four antipsychotics, which is really unconscionable when we know that an antipsychotic will cause metabolic disorder. We've got to be able to be more thoughtful Mm -hmm. about how we deliver care and, and sort of treat the whole person, and this will give us an opportunity to I think, you know, we've just been through in New Hampshire, I used to work in New Hampshire, a, a, a five-year primary care behavioral health integration grant, which sort of founded on the rocks in the end because it wasn't refunded. And we did some great things with it uh, in, some, in terms of special projects. But there was this overwhelming, continued, volume-based system that mm-hmm. everybody was on the platform with which gets in the way of it. So it's got to be big. If we go, if we go anywhere, we've got to go big, I think. I agree. And I, I think that's what's impressive in Massachusetts is I think the governor and, and Mary Lou Sutter's the Secretary of Health and Human Services, have that big vision. Um, and she's a, a, a social worker by, you know, by background. So, you know, and he, the governor, ran Harvard Pilgrim. So they've really had an opportunity over their careers to see, you know, where are the shortcomings in the big system, not the, you know, the, these little incremental changes may help, but they're not the real answer. So um, I think they've taken some really bold moves already in um, creating um, the framework for a behavioral health system that actually meets the needs of the patients. And now with the 1115 waiver, the um, ability and the potential to um, include that um, integration, behavioral health, and, and medical as well. So it's it's pretty exciting to yeah. see, you know, what, what could happen. In conclusion, we're almost at the end of our time. The great thing about a podcast is there really is no end of the time, so we can go on a little longer <laughs> if, we, if we wish. Um, I want to talk a little about the, some of the cross-pollination of the two um, organizations here and some of the ways that all of you see that um, you know, there is that cross-pollination that currently exists 
and maybe some of the ways that you think that um, the two entities could work together uh, more in the future. Um, we'll start with uh, Peter. Well, I would ask Allison actually to speak mm-hmm. about this because I think you're probably the best person, best place person to, to begin this conversation. And, and again, I think there's been some excellent work going on over the past few years. Sure. I was reflecting about this today in preparation for this discussion, too, and, and thinking about um, how much I value the, the partnership that we have with the COPE Center in particular. Um, I think that it's rare for us to, to find like a, a mutual respect and trust of, of other community entities sometimes to the point where I know that if we're sending someone to COPE, they're getting the same dignity, respect, the kind of care that, that we want for our patients and and vice versa um, when they send someone to us. And so it's something that I really appreciate because I think it's unique about that relationship and about that partnership. And so that's why I'm extra excited that they'll be joining us on our um, mobile addiction services uh, unit as well, which is very, very exciting. I'm hoping that we can have that delivering services very soon. Um, But to have staff from COPE out there with us, I think – it not only does it work because of the relationship we have as, as partners and as providers, but also it sends a message to the people that we serve that there's multiple doors for people to access if they're ready for services. They can trust us. They can trust COPE, um, you know, and, and any other number of, of partners that uh, we've built that kind of a relationship with. And that was always the goal in a lot of the work we've done over the last five years since I've been in Brockton is there's there's no wrong door when you need services. We're all here to provide those services. Um, and we want to do it in a way where we promote, you know, the dignity and respect that, um, in particular, when, when I'm thinking about this, that people who use drugs um, encounter. And so um, it's something that I'm grateful for uh, when I think about the work that we do and exciting in the up and coming months as well. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you actually hit on the reason why it works, and that is the culture. And these are very two, mm-hmm. two, two very similar cultures of, that have come up through the, you know, the community organization, community outreach, community social work, all of those things. There's a, and I, I've, I've always felt that there's a real connection between community mental health organizations, as they were known, and the community health centers. And they were pushed apart in some ways by, by funding mechanisms, but the culture was always the same. And this idea of the dignity of the human being uh, and this idea that it's a disease um, and not a choice and that as a chronic disease, the outcome um, measures are actually better for mental health and substance use disorders than some other chronic diseases like diabetes. When you start to have conversations like that, you normalize, oh, disease, oh, you can get better, oh, here are people that are going to be, you know, uh, in our communities, whether we treat them or not, mm-hmm. and, and we can make a real difference. Mm-hmm. I do think I do think that's something that sort of brought these organizations together, whether they wanted to or not. Oh, well, I think BMC and the Health Center have always been intertwined. I'm sitting here looking at the photo of, of Tom Fahey, one of our founding board members, um, who a long time... BMZ leader and longtime advocate in the HIV community, mm-hmm. um, and the grant writer who wrote our grant to, to start the health center was from the BMZ grant writer. Mm-hmm. So we started off with that, you know, that intertwined history, and it's continued um, ever since, not only on substance use disorder treatment, but also around um, HIV, um, WIC. Uh, always had a very close relationship, and up until the pandemic hit, had a WIC 
um, staff within our health center a couple days a week. So, it, you know, it's always been, you know, this really back and forth relationship of kind of filling in each other's gaps. And that's been, been you know, a really great relationship over time. And the two organizations that are dropped in, I know that we're sort of expanding a little bit, uh, you know, though there are eight, there are agencies that know people can come to and get mm-hmm. help. And, you know, I think also agencies that sort of reflect the communities in terms of the people who work with us as well, which I think is really important. Um, so I, and I, I do think that all of that sort of sets the table for the next five, ten years in terms of further exploration of some of those relationships that, uh, that mean that we can, um, you know, uh, move towards a, a mm-hmm. population health model that accepts that the social determinants of health are as important as the, as the doctor's office visit and are, are, are underscored uh, every time we have a conversation with people. And, and you know, that, to me, anyway, is the, is the future of this mm-hmm. work. Well, Sue, Allison, thank you so much uh, for coming in. Thanks for discussing the uh, the partnership uh, between uh, Brockton Neighborhood Health Center and uh, us here at uh, Bamsey. Look forward to having you on again soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having us. Thank yeah, you, thank Peter. Thank you for having us. All right, Sue Joss and uh, Allison Pinkover joining us here on the Humanity First podcast. I am Chris Ryan. Have a great rest of the day, everybody.